Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. Welcome. If you are online joining us, we're glad that you are here. I know that a lot of our families are out on vacation and camping and everywhere else. So, yeah, it's good to see you. Um, a few years ago, my family, uh, we take our vacations every year in Central Oregon. It's like the one place in the world where I feel like my problems don't follow me. It's a beautiful spot, and our family has a, a house out in Sun River, and so uh, we, were, we were there uh, with our whole family. Our oldest son, Louis, had just been born a couple of months before, and Carly and I were still in sort of that chaotic sleepless fugue state that you were in at the beginning when you first have a newborn. And while we were on vacation, my brother, uh, he invited Carly and me to join him and Gretchen on a hike up South Sister. At the time, he had been um, uh, training for a marathon, and at the time, I had been um, staying up late eating pounds of cured meats and cheeses, um, as you do when you're staying up with a newborn. And so, so he said, why don't you go on a hike with us? Note the word hike there. We didn't know anything about this hike, but we were game for a nice little hike in Central Oregon. That sounds great. And it turns out that this hike was actually climbing a mountain, like, like a real mountain, not like a hill, like a real mountain. And so Carly and I, we were not prepared. Physically, we were sleep-deprived and out of shape. Carly had just had a baby a couple months before. Um, we were not prepared with supplies. We had only brought like a half a sandwich and maybe a liter of water each for this nice little stroll through the Central Oregon wilderness. Um, and we brought a couple of sour beers for the end of the hike, which ended up, we drank on the way back thinking that that might help. It did not help. Um, uh, and we were tempted to quit several times along the way, but I'm so glad that we kept going. It ended up being one of the most rewarding climbs that we've ever done. Uh, it's, it's an incredibly beautiful wilderness. We, we just kept trudging up and up and up. And how many of you have climbed South Sister? Has anybody in the room done it before? A handful of us? When you climb South Sister, here's the thing. You're going and going and going, and you're seeing the top, and you're almost there, and it's steep and it's long, and you get to the top, and, you, and then you look up and you see that you're actually only about halfway, that it was only a false summit. And Carly says, please tell me it's worth it. I say, you're not gonna like the view because we still have to go all the way up there. We hike all the way to the top and it was one of the best things we've done. There were these incredible views. We had tons of fun. We laughed a lot. Um, we were challenged and we did it together. It was something that we accomplished together. Carly kept climbing because she trusted me to be with her and to help her all the way. I was a trustworthy guide, while Jesse was a deceiver. And um, now, if Carly had known what the trail would be like, Jesse just rolled his eyes pretty hard. This is a, I am embellishing things pretty significantly up here. It ended up being, uh, or if Carly had known what the trail would be like, she probably wouldn't have gone with us on the climb but she also wouldn't have known how beautiful and rewarding it was. And see, throughout the scriptures, the life of commitment to God is often depicted as sort of a path or a journey that we go on. In fact, early Christians weren't called Christians at the beginning. They were called those who follow the way. Our faith was originally called the way. 
And in the four gospels, Jesus is consistently inviting people to join him on the way, but he's also simultaneously trying to talk them out of following him. He tells us the way to follow him is not for the faint of heart. It is not a light hike. It is not comfortable or easy, but he also reminds us that in following him, we are, fi- we are following him into what he calls abundant life. And so today, as we're nearing the end of our series, as we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus here in his sermon is concluding with three stark warnings to all of his followers. And this morning, we're going to look at two of them, and then we're going to finish out the series next week uh, before we transition to uh, prayer at the park. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be beginning in verse 13. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus here paints a picture of two different kinds of roads with different kinds of gates. Now, in the ancient world, there were some gates that were wide open, and they led to roads that were very broad. And these gates could fit entire crowds of people all walking through at the same time. They could accommodate animals and carts and cargo and loads. These roads, uh, and the roads that, that followed from those kind of gates were usually quite flat and easy to walk along. They were safer because they weren't as remote and there would be lots of other people around so you would feel safe from thieves or bandits. You could walk through one of these gates totally unaware that you were even walking through it, just completely thoughtlessly uh, because of how wide it was. On the other hand, there were gates that were smaller and they led to paths that were much more narrow and harder to navigate. And these paths were usually steep and rocky and remote. Less people would be walking on it, which made it inherently more dangerous because of thieves again. And these paths required a level of alertness and fitness to be able to hike them. And this was like a really common image in Jesus' day. And this parable, it explains that the go with the flow road, while seemingly safe and relatively easy, ends up in destruction. And the narrow road, which represents a life in submission that feels like it's treacherous and dangerous and frightening, is actually the path that ultimately leads us into true life. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is distinguishing between two groups. Uh, There was a large group who kept showing up to listen to him. The Gospels call them the crowds. These are the people who are interested or intrigued by Jesus but are not committed to him. They come for the spectacle of Jesus' ministry, maybe even looking for a handout of some bread and fish, but end up walking away every time Jesus gives a hard teaching that, that demands something costly of them. On the other hand, there's another group called the disciples, And these are those who leave everything behind to follow Jesus, no matter what. And time and again, Jesus sends out the invitation to the crowds. He says, come and be my disciples. Come and follow me. And everyone in the crowd is invited to choose this narrow gate, but very few end up making that choice. The narrowness of the gate and the path They're not intended to be heard as Jesus' exclusive call to only a few people, a select group of people. It's not about exclusivity. When Jesus says only few find it, uh, it's not because the gate is so hidden that no one will ever see it except for those with special knowledge or special access. 
it's there for all of us, but many will not pay enough attention to the roads that are set before them. You see, narrowness is not about exclusivity. It's about specificity. What Jesus is teaching us is that everyone is welcome, but not all roads will end up in the same destination. Only one road will lead you to true life. Jesus is saying that his gate and his path are the only way to discover true abundant life in the kingdom of God. Jesus is welcoming all people, but not all roads. The path to true life is specific. So, why the language of both gates and roads? What is the gate all about and what is the road all about? While some scholars contend that the the gate, the narrow gate, is about obedience to the commands of Jesus in this sermon, most scholars believe that the believe that the image of the narrow, narrow gate, excuse me, represents Jesus himself, that Jesus is the gate. Jesus is our access into the path of life. So entering the narrow gate is about entering into a relationship with Jesus. It's not about a philosophy. It's not about a list of rules. It's not mere doctrine. It's more than just going to church or doing good things. The narrow gate is all about how you are in relationship with Jesus. Here's how uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a famous pastor and theologian from, uh, in, in, the, in Germany in the Nazi era, this is how he speaks of the narrow gate in his book, Discipleship. He says, it is an unbearable road. The danger of falling off threatens every minute. As long as I recognize this road as the one I am commanded to walk and I try to walk it in fear of myself, it is truly impossible. But if I see Jesus walking ahead of me, step by step, and if I look at him and follow him step by step, then I will be protected on this path. If I look at the danger in what I'm doing, if I look at the path instead of at him who is walking ahead of me, then my foot is already slipping. He himself is the way. He is the narrow road and the narrow gate. The only thing that matters is finding him. If we know that, then we will walk the narrow way to life through the narrow gate of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's a profoundly beautiful quote. Our assurance along the way is that we are walking with Jesus step by step. Our security is not in the fact that we find ourselves on the correct path. Our security is ultimately in the fact that we are with the one who is leading us along the path. But notice that this gate includes the cross of Jesus Christ. The truth is that walking through the narrow gate is costly. It involves a death. Jesus offers this invitation again in Mark chapter 8 where he says, he calls the crowd to him and he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. The call to relationship with Jesus actually begins with a call to dying. But the promise is that on the other side of this death, it is there that we will find true everlasting life. Jesus says you cannot cling to your own life. You cannot call Jesus Lord while hanging on to your own desires and your future and your rights. And if we're honest, it's scary to let go of everything and die to yourself. It's painful. 
But this is where we experience this true life that all of us and all those around us are clamoring for, looking to every which way, trying to find something that will ultimately satisfy. And Jesus offers it to anyone, but it's on the other side of the narrow gate. Again, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Cost of Discipleship, he says, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of the world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. The way of the cross of Jesus is the gateway to life. The cross is not the end for us, it's actually the beginning. And it's at the cross that we discover everything that we are longing for. The Apostle Paul, he echoes the same sentiment in his letter to the Philippians. He says relationship with Jesus is the fellowship of the cross. It's the fellowship of his suffering. It's in our personal death to ourselves where we experience the deepest relationship with Jesus. To the, uh, I mean, just listen to the way that he talks about the cross in Philippians 3. He says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation or fellowship in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death so that somehow I can attain to the resurrection from the dead. I consider everything in this world a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. My friends, do we know Jesus like that? Have you experienced that, that kind of fellowship like the Apostle Paul is calling us to? Access to the kingdom of God, it only comes by the way of the cross. Jesus is the gate. And we can only walk along the narrow path as we enter in the narrow gate. So if relationship with Jesus and the cross is the gate, then following the way of Jesus is the path. The path is what the Bible calls discipleship. Discipleship, another word for it is like apprenticeship. And so as disciples of Jesus, we're walking the narrow, we're, we're not walking the narrow path alone. We're actually walking alongside our guide and our teacher and our master as he is training us as we walk. Our teacher is right beside us, guiding us along. Moment by moment, we are able to invite Jesus to teach us how to walk this path, to correct us when we're doing it wrong, to help us when we don't know what to do next or where to go. It's a lifetime of walking the path with Jesus. As followers of Jesus, we are not weekend trippers. We are pilgrims. And we are pilgrims walking with our Messiah, with our rabbi, close to him every step of the way. And so even though the way is hard, it is not burdensome because Jesus is with us. This is how we can marry the dual truths 
that the path is hard, but the yoke is easy. The way is difficult, but the burden is light. And so the command from Jesus to enter through the narrow gate, it is not meant to be described, like for us to think about it in terms of a one-time entrance where we simply respond to an altar call or we say a prayer and now suddenly we're on this path and we have no choice, we're on it forever. Uh, You're stuck, you know. Don't you wish you could be back on the broad path? No, this is actually spoken to us as an ongoing command. A more accurate translation would be keep entering by the narrow gate. It's a daily recognition that we are not walking the broad path through the wide gate. It's an each morning stepping through the narrow gate of the cross so that we can walk with him the narrow path to life. These dueling paths, the broad versus the narrow, they lead to radically different ends. Jesus' path leads us to what he calls life. And the broad path leads to what he calls destruction. And once again, this is not primarily about the end of our lives, whether we go to heaven or hell, although it includes that. But Jesus is speaking more about an ongoing experience of what leads to true life here and what leads to destruction here, as well as in the age to come. And so each day we are called again and again to choose life to choose connection with Jesus, a life of blessing and freedom and harmony with God. And the broad path that leads to destruction. Jesus teaches us that there is an actual cost not only to discipleship, there is also a cost to non-discipleship. Here's how uh, Dallas Willard writes it in The Spirit of the Disciplines. He says, the cost of non-discipleship is far greater, even when this life alone is considered, than the price paid to walk with Jesus. Non-discipleship costs abiding peace, a life penetrated throughout by love, faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding governance for good, hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances, power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, it costs exactly that abundance of life Jesus said he came to bring. There's a cost to discipleship, But there is an even greater cost, ultimately, to non-discipleship. Life on the broad path through the wide gate is costly. It costs us all of the abiding peace and joy that Jesus offers to his followers. The easy road leads to difficult ends, and the difficult road leads to abiding life. Now, To be clear, this teaching does not mean that obedience to the way of Jesus automatically guarantees that all of life's circumstances will go favorably for us, right? Mostly the opposite, right? Um, When I was a teenager, I grew up in an era uh, that we commonly call sort of the purity movement. Um, I was actually a part of an abstinence-only education drama troupe way back in the day. I scoured the internet. There is no video of it that I can find. Praise God. Um, But I remember going to a conference, and uh, the preacher at the conference was boldly telling a room full of teenagers that if you obey Jesus with your sexuality, God will give you a hot wife, which worked for some of us. But that's like, that's like a really bold guarantee. That's like my first pretty toxic prosperity gospel that was preached to me. And the truth is that some of my friends who sat in that same room alongside me and who have been faithful with their sexuality for the, in all the years since, some of them have actually still not been married, not found that hot wife or, or companion uh, to spend their life with. 
well, I thought that I was owed this for doing this. Similarly, our generosity to God doesn't assure us that great wealth and prosperity will follow us. You can be extravagantly obedient and generous with your money and still never end up having very much. The narrow path that leads to life does not promise us a life of ease, but it does promise a life of meaning and purpose. And most valuably, it's a life of relationship with Jesus, our source of peace and joy. How are we doing? We hanging in there? Okay, we're halfway, guys, so maybe like shake it out a little bit. We're going a little long. Now, all this leads to the second warning that we have from Jesus. Jesus recognizes that as we are trying to navigate these two paths, we will need guides along the way. The problem, and the problem is that not all guides are pointing us in the way that we should go. Not all guides are going to be very trustworthy. Look with me at verse 15. Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and the bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will, t- I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. When I was a freshman in high school, I was about 15 years old, I had an English teacher uh, who saw it as his mission to undermine the faith of young followers of Jesus. And ironically, his name was Mr. Christian. Now... <laughs> Um, And so one day I walk into class and there at the front of the room was the stand with the TV and the VCR sitting on it, uh, signaling that it was movie day, the thing that we all looked forward to, right? You walk into class, you see that TV and VCR, you know it's gonna be at least, at least you can fall asleep or something. So the movie that he showed me, showed us that day was called Marjo. And it was a documentary from 1972 about a preacher by the name of Marjo Gortner. And it was exposing the lucrative world of Pentecostal evangelists in the tent revival era. Has anybody seen this documentary? Really? Okay. Bob has. Cool. So this this documentary, it rattled me. Here was a guy who was leading revivals. People were getting saved. People were getting healed. Demons were being cast out. And the whole thing was a sham to make money. He would, it would show video of him being up front preaching before all of these people, getting them to shimmy and shake, getting them to speak in tongues and all of this sort of stuff. And then it would show him in his hotel room throwing money in the air, laughing hysterically, and then explaining how it is that he manipulated people to speak in tongues, to get healed, uh, you know, and that it was all, ultimately it was all just for the money. It was, it was, it was, it really affected me. It really, really affected me. And I went home that day after watching that video and was wondering, is this the kind of thing that happens behind the scenes at the camps and conferences that I go to? Like, could I actually trust any of these leaders around me? It was the first time that I realized that there are many men and women who use Jesus for their own personal gain 
manipulating followers of Jesus to gain wealth and power and sex. And in the wake of, of all of the scandals, I think that these, these questions still continue to perplex followers of Jesus. And beyond corrupt preachers, what do we make of other people who use Jesus for self-promotion? You know, what about actors and politicians and musicians, all who claim some identification with Christ in moments of convenience? And for many, the exposure of such false professors of Jesus leads to cynicism and mistrust. And over the last couple of years, we've had just, a, just this, this devastating wake of fallen preachers and pastors, ranging from Mars Hill to Hillsong to Ravi Zacharias to Willow Creek to recently the Southern Baptist Convention, scandal upon scandal upon scandal to say nothing of the Catholic Church and so on. And these devastating public failures have led countless people who name the name of Christ to blow up their faith, deconstruct, walk away. It's tragic that the fall of a pastor or a leader causes so many people to give up on their faith because it's just too hard to tell the difference between true leaders and false leaders. And this is what Jesus is warning us about here in Matthew 7. So let's take a deeper look at what he says. He says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. When Jesus warns us against false prophets, the first question we have to ask is, what's a prophet? Like, I don't know if I've ever actually met a prophet. Now, in Jesus' day, the claim of a prophet was somewhat more common. It was a word that described someone who spoke on behalf of God, usually some kind of leader in the synagogue. Nowadays, it's pretty rare to meet somebody who claims to be a prophet, who passes around business cards with the title prophet on it, you know, to let you know. And if you do get a business card from someone that says, I am a prophet, probably a sign they're not a prophet. <laughs> now, <laughs> Today, we are more likely to call these, these people authors or influencers or professors or pastors, but not all of these influences in our lives can be trusted to actually lead us to Jesus. This warning from Jesus is repeated over and over again throughout the rest of the Bible, especially in the New Testament. Each writer in the New Testament echoes Jesus' warning. Here's what Peter says in 2 Peter. He says, but there were also false prophets among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, uh, in their greed these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories, embellished stories at times. Yeah. There... <laughs> Condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. Or this from the Apostle Paul writing to his young protege Timothy, he says, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from truth and turn aside to myths. Man, like, this is so true of the day and age that we live in today. You can have a never-ending supply of people who are willing to tell you whatever you want to hear, who are eager to scratch the itch in your ear. And Jesus warns us to be careful about who we are giving our ear to. 
These prophets are like guides on the journey. And not all of these guides are leading us to the right path. Some guides are gonna be calling us to the narrow way that leads to life, but many, many others will lead us to the wide path that leads to destruction. So how can you tell which voices are true and which are false? The problem is it's not always very clear or easy to see who is a false prophet. Jesus uses this analogy. He calls them wolves dressing up in sheep's clothing. This means that from a distance, they look like sheep. They look safe and pure and trustworthy on the outside. But on the inside, he says they are ferocious wolves. They are predators looking to devour. False prophets often don't look like false prophets. You can't always take at face value anyone who claims to speak on behalf of God. And as much as it scares me to say this, that includes your pastors. That includes me. It definitely includes Steve. <laughs> Not that, we, sorry, Steve. Not that we should automatically treat every leader in the church with suspicion, but we should pay attention to the outcomes of their lives. So how do you tell a prophet from a false one? Jesus goes on to lay out sort of three criteria for how we judge those who speak on behalf of God. And the first is that we are to test the fruit of the lives of these people. He says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. We are to judge prophets by the fruit that comes out of their lives. In the New Testament, fruit is a word picture for sort of the kind of character that they have in their lives. In ministry, we often uh, mix up uh, uh, productivity for what Jesus actually calls fruit. Jesus doesn't call productivity or results fruitfulness. He actually calls character fruitfulness. We'll look at a person who has led a lot of people to Jesus or who has healed lots of sick people and marvel at how fruitful they are, how big their church is, how many campuses they've planted, how many late leaders that they've raised up. But the fruit that Jesus speaks of is different than those kind of outcomes. In the book of Galatians, Jesus says that the fruit that comes from, uh, that, that comes from the Spirit are things that are like character, things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. In the message, Eugene Peterson translates Matthew 7 like this. He says, be wary of false preachers who smile a lot, dripping with practiced sincerity. Chances are they are out to rip you off some way or other. Don't be impressed with charisma, but look for character. Who preachers are is the main thing, not what they say. A genuine leader will never exploit your emotions or your pocketbook. These diseased trees with their bad apples are going to be chopped down and burned. Don't be impressed with charisma. Don't marvel at productivity. Don't be seduced by charm. Look at their character. Does their life match up with their message? And again, that's not to say that we should all be like detectives digging up all the dirt, trying to find all the skeletons in the closet for every pastor. You would not have to dig far to find plenty in me. But the question is, are these prophets repentant of their sin? Are they seeking to put their flesh to death? Do they shed tears over the real mess that is in their heart? We're called to pay attention to their families. Do their kids flourish under their care? Does their spouse reflect Jesus? This is the kind of fruit that Jesus is interested in. He is far less impressed with what we accomplish for him, and he is far more interested in how we walk with him. 
But this fruit test, this character test, is not enough on its own. A person may have visibly good character and still be false in what they teach. So that's why we come to the next test, which is testing their words. Jesus again says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's not enough to just look at the character of the prophet, nor is it enough to just listen to their spiritual-sounding language. We need to see how these things are married together. Here's uh, how Paul charged his protege Timothy in 1 Timothy. He says, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Life and doctrine character, and teaching. For the leader in the church, these are the two pillars of ministry. So how does this podcast or this book or this preacher lead you? When you listen to them or read them, does it stir your heart to obey the teachings of Jesus? Does it give you a greater imagination for the kingdom of God? Does it inspire you to do the stuff that Jesus did and to live sacrificially for the sake of others? Or does this person water down the teachings of Jesus? Do they relax the commands? Do they bless a lukewarm lifestyle? Does the speaker use flimsy interpretation to explain away Jesus' words? Do they make us suspicious of the Bible instead of trusting it? Do they scratch the itching ear and tell you what you want to hear? These, these false prophets are called wolves in sheep's clothing. They sound really spiritual, they sound like they know their Bible. They use Christian language. Lord, Lord, they cry out, and Jesus says, watch out for them. Which brings us finally to the third test, that we are to test their intimacy with God. Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. It's not enough to pass the fruit test, and it's not even enough to pass the doctrine test. At the end of the day, the most important thing to Jesus is whether we have a relationship with him. Jesus tells this story about the end of the age when the dead are raised and he judges the living and the dead. And he says that on that day, many will come forward with really impressive resumes laying out for Jesus all of their productivity. We prophesied in your name, Jesus, we cast out demons. We led campaigns. We dug wells in underdeveloped countries. We led people to you, Jesus. And tragically, they will be denied entry to the kingdom of heaven because they missed what was most important. They never knew Jesus. This word that Jesus uses for know here is the word gnosko, which is a word for relational knowledge. It's about intimacy, it's the word that we, that's used when we talk about Adam knowing his wife, Eve. And so it's not whether, we, whether or not we know a lot about Jesus. It's about a close and intimate relationship with Jesus. And on that day, everything will be laid bare and, and will be out in the open for all of us to see. And only then will we be able to truly determine who was a true prophet and a false prophet, who was a true leader or a false teacher, who was a wolf and who was a sheep. This third test is one that we cannot actually measure on this side of the day of the Lord. We can guess, we can assume, 
We can try our best to discern, but we can't actually test for whether someone has a relationship with God. And the most sobering tragedy of this story here is that these people don't realize that they missed it. The deceivers themselves are deceived. And even when they are called out by Jesus, do they repent? No, they rationalize. They rely on their list and they miss it completely. These would-be prophets walking through the broad gate on the easy path and they end up missing the joy of walking the way of sacrifice in relationship with Jesus. So Jesus sets before all of us this choice. Will we choose the wide gate, the mindless gate that you don't have to pay attention to? Will we choose the broad road? Or instead, will we choose the narrow gate and the narrow path? Once again, Dallas Willard for the win. He says, the greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who, by profession or culture, are identified as Christians, whether they will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. The call for us is to recognize and renounce the path that goes with the flow. Following Jesus is not mindless. Following Jesus doesn't happen by accident. It requires intentionality. It means every morning choosing to walk with Jesus on the narrow path. And this narrow path isn't easy. By definition, it's dangerous. In fact, it requires a death to ourselves. But Jesus promises us that it is the way to abundant life with him. It's the life in connection to our loving father. It is a life of profound meaning and purpose and freedom. And though Jesus warns that very few end up finding it, the invitation is to everyone. Amen?